Good morning, church. How is everyone today? Praise Jesus. I'm so excited that you're here, whether you're joining us in the room or online. We're excited to be here together. Um, for those that don't know, my name is Scott. I'm actually I'm one of the pastors. I'm actually the worship pastor. But today we're going to be doing things. <laughs> woo woo. Nobody, nobody ever woo woos the worship pastor. Why is that? <laughs> so, so we're going to be doing things, a couple different things different today. Pastor Brad and his family are on vacation, and it's a much-needed vacation. I don't think they've had one all year. So he has asked and allowed me to actually step in and preach. So I'm super excited about that. So you're going to be praying for that. The second thing that's cool is that our youth team is going to lead worship today. Where are they at? Uh, they do a great they do a great job every Wednesday night, and um, some of them actually play with our, our worship team, but they've, they've been working hard, so we're excited about that. If you are a guest visiting with us for the first time, or maybe the first time in a while, we encourage you to download the Southview Baptist Church app, and you can uh, text the word CONNECT to 910-424-1298, 910-424-1298, and we'll get you plugged in there. Uh, you can find out things that are going on in terms of journey groups, what's offered, um, events, and things like that. Um, so we're excited about that. We're not going to harass you, but we do want to know that you're here. We want to know how we can reach out and help you and things like that. So we're excited. Also, for the big three announcements, we actually have four that we're going to talk about. So I just lied to you. I'm sorry, but that's okay. Number one, we're having Deacon Nomination Month this month. So if you know a man or men who are godly in character and you believe that they would be um, suited for the role of deacon here in South Baptist Church, we would like you to text the word deacon into that number, 910-424-1298. You can, you can text as many men's names as you want to. They need to be members of the church, they need to be believers, and they need to have a strong character for Christ. The second thing is we're having the men's fellowship next Saturday at 8 a.m. So men, I encourage you to sign up for that by texting the word breakfast to the same number. We're going to have a great time of fellowship, and um, we'll see what God does there. And then baptism is happening on August 15th. So we encourage you, if you're interested in that, to sign up for that. There's actually a class that you have to attend the Sunday before. So um, we ask that you sign up by texting baptism to that number. And then last but not least, um, after the 11 o'clock service, we are going to have a family meeting. We're going to be voting on a huge proposal to re-carpet and repaint the church. So it's a huge, huge amount of money. We invite you to come join us. Let's have some discussion. Let's vote. And let's make that thing happen. We're going to do everything except for the sanctuary. There's some information in the welcome desk as you leave uh, that encourage you to be there. If you're not a member, you can't vote, but we still ask you to join us and just sort of see how God's people conduct his business because that's important, right? So anything else that's happening, you can download the app. You can find those things there. Um, but for today, so as we move into a time of worship through song, I'm thinking about um, what the psalmist says in Psalm 146. Well, like, why are we here, right? What's the purpose? And the purpose is to glorify God for what he is, who he is, and what he's done for us. So I invite us to join the psalmist that says, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord with all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. He says, the Lord sets prisoners free. 
The Lord gives sight to the blind. Isn't that amazing? The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. He frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for generations. Praise the Lord. And that's why we're here. So I encourage you, church, as we stand in a moment, as we sing, that we celebrate who Christ is in our lives. And if you are if you are new to the whole church thing, if you've never heard the gospel, I pray that you would hear the gospel preached through song, through prayer, through preaching of the word, and you would be saved. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be here together. And Lord, I pray nothing more than you would simply inhabit the praises of your people. God, I pray that your glory and your righteousness would be lifted up that as we sing, as we celebrate, we do so out of hearts that are overflowing with thankfulness. As your heart overflows with mercy and grace for us, God, I pray that you would move, that you would cause us to worship, that you would cause us to turn back to you. Lord, we love you. We praise you for this time. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together, church. Let's sing. Let's stand and sing, church.
This next song we're going to sing is called Always, and it's based in large part on Psalm 46. And in Psalm 46, the psalmist says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we shall not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains should slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Later he says, come, behold the works of the Lord. And again later, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Let's sing. Red! 
Again, you may be seated. Didn't they do great? It is not about it is not about celebrating people singing, but it is about the fact that um that they have hearts for Jesus. And so I love that about each one of them, um, both young and older. <laughs> so th- so this just happened. So I'm sitting there before service. My family is so encouraging. My daughter's like, Dad, it's really important that you don't sup. I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. And so that's how we encourage each other in our, in our house. <coughs> All right, so today I want to spend our time talking about something, contemplating something and discussing something together, church, so wonderful, so amazing. It's, it's something that's so essential to our faith. It's critical to our foundation. We always have to have it in the forefront of our minds if we are to, as Paul says, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In, in, a, in a world where, in a world where, where truth is relative, right? Where the goalpost of what's acceptable in society and behavior and beliefs, where it changes almost every day, I want to remind us that there is truth. It can be known, it has been revealed, and his name is Jesus. So I want to talk today about the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. I'm probably not, I'm probably not going to say anything that you haven't already heard before or thought of. But again, I think that you know, if, you, if you look throughout um, Scripture, God repeats himself a lot, right? I think there's a reason for that. And so the supremacy of Christ. We're going to be looking today, we're going to take a break from Acts, and we're going to jump over to Colossians. We're going to, going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. It's aptly titled, The Preeminence of Christ, or maybe your translation might say, The Centrality of Christ, or The Incomparable Christ. And I chose this scripture because I think that, to me, no other passage in the Bible so completely encompasses the greatness and the majesty of who Christ is. So before we actually jump in, I want to give you a little backstory. The book of Colossians, as, as most of us probably know, was written by the Apostle Paul. He probably wrote it when he was in prison, um, probably in Rome. And he's writing to the church at Colossae. It's a city located in the region of Phrygia, in the Roman province of Asia, what's modern-day Turkey. Okay, and so... In the 5th century B.C., uh, this city was a a huge, huge um, city, huge city of trade. But when the Romans sort of came in and conquered, they they changed some of the trade routes. And so the city began to decline. So by the time of Paul's writing, it's a smaller city, um, an agricultural-based city, and it's made up of Gentiles and Jews. And so the church actually wasn't started by Paul. It was started by a man named Epaphras. Epaphras was a a Colossian who probably traveled to Ephesus, which is about 100 miles away. He probably traveled there. He probably heard the gospel from Paul, was converted, right, was saved, and then went back and started the church. And the reason that Paul is writing to them, so Paul's never been here, right? He's never met these people, but he loves them as his own. He calls calls Epaphras... um, 
and mighty, a beloved fellow servant of Jesus Christ. And so what's going on is he's, he's writing to address a heresy that is starting to develop in the body of the believers. It hasn't quite infected the church yet, um, but it's close. It's a mixture of, of, of Greek philosophy and Jewish legalism. The heresy is precursor to what uh, became known in like the second or third century as Gnosticism, right? You've heard the term Gnostic. And so what that means at a simple level is that at a high level, Gnostics believed or believe that, that all spirit is good and all flesh, all matter is bad. And so good spirit doesn't go over here, matter doesn't go over here. And this is sort of the precursor. And, and so what they said was the Greeks were teaching that they, they believed that, that there is a creator, all right? There is a, an overall God supreme. But because the world is bad, he didn't create the world. What he did was he created emanations is what they call it in some of the texts, or just angels. He created angels and then down the line and down the line and down the line and down the line. And finally, one of them created the world. But it wasn't God. And so as a result, the Greeks believed that because of that, they needed these angels, these emanations, to reach salvation. And they're thinking Jesus was probably one of them, one of the angels, maybe even the first created angel from God, but he wasn't God. He didn't create the world. So they've taken away his deity, right? But then also because he was an angel, he's not a man. Because the angels wouldn't be flesh, because flesh and spirit are separate. So now they took away his humanity. They also believed that a supernatural revelation from God was necessary to obtain salvation. Greeks loved their philosophy. They loved to debate. And they simply couldn't accept the fact that the salvation of Christ it's so simple. They couldn't accept that the message is, is that is that simple, right? I think that's something that some of us struggle with today. And on the Jewish side, so remember the church is made up of Gentiles and Jews who have come to faith in Christ, supposedly. On the Jewish side, there's this push for a return to Jewish ceremonialism and legalism. They believed that they were, they were pushing the fact that you had to be um, circumcised. They believed that you had to follow some of the strict dietary rules and celebrations, right? They're trying to go back to the Old Testament. Some of the Jews even advocated this idea of asceticism, which is basically um, extreme self-denial and harsh treatment of the body. And, and so they're taking, the, they're taking the gospel in ways that it shouldn't go, and, and Epaphras says, I need some help. So Paul is writing this letter. That's, that's, that's the main purpose of Colossians, is to show that Christ is God. So starting at verse 15, we're going to jump in, we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. 
he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's an amazing, amazing passage of scripture. Let's pray. God, I pray that you simply, that you simply would reveal this truth to us today. Remind us who you are. That you are God, that you are Lord, that Christ is King. And that above you there is no other. I pray that you would inhabit the praises of your people as we sing, as we pray, as we preach. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So first, point number one. We see that Christ's supremacy is shown in that he is the exact image of God. He's the exact image of God. Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That word, the Greek word for image is icon. And with, we get the English word icon. It carries with it two ideas of representation and manifestation. Um, the word doesn't perfectly express that Jesus is God. We gather the intent from surrounding scriptures and other passages in the Bible, which is how we should always study, right? Like you never take one passage and, and say that's it. You, you have to make sure that, that everything correlates together so that your ideas are God's ideas. Man holds similar attributes. This is the word that God used when he said we created man, but but and, and again, man holds similar attributes to God. He can, you know, we have emotions, we can think, we can, we can feel, we can reason. But there are some things about God that we obviously don't possess. We're not omnipotent. We're not all-knowing. We're not all-seeing. Man is made in the image of God, but Christ is the exact representation. He is God. We see this proclaim, proclaimed throughout Scripture in John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. In Hebrews 1.3, I love this, Christ is called the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Some translations, uh, instead of imprint, say representation or expression. The word used here is different. It's character. And we get the English word character. There's going to be a test afterwards, so write all this down. <laughs> and... And this word literally means an exact representation. There is zero difference between the two, right? It has the idea of, of a stamp or, or a coin or an engraved image, but there is no difference. It's not, like, it's not like one is the original and one's a really, really, really good counterfeit. You know, like you can almost not tell a difference. That's not what it means here. The phrasing expresses the fact that the sun is both personally distinct and yet literally equal to God the Father. He is not, as a heretic suggested, a much lesser descended spirit with some of God's powers, maybe two or three or four thousand times removed. As we continue to read in chapter 1 of Hebrews, verse 4 says, Christ has become so much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So here again, we see the confirmation that Christ is above the angels. Secondly, we see Christ's supremacy in the fact that he has no beginning and no end. 
verse 15, Christ is called the firstborn of all creation. The Greek word for firstborn is prototokos. And while it can mean the firstborn in chronological order, like in Luke chapter 2, Luke uses that word to describe Christ as Mary's first child, right? But it primarily refers to rank and position. In the Greek and the Jewish culture, the first son born was not necessarily the, the first son that had the right of inheritance. For example, Psalm eighty nine twenty seven says, And I will make, this is God talking about David, and I will make him firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. Again, he's referring to King David. He calls him firstborn, even though he was the lastborn son of Jesse. In John 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And in Hebrews 1, 8, we read, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever So it's clear the meaning there. In the most famous verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16, we see that Christ is referred to as the only begotten Son of God. The phrase refers not to Christ coming into existence at a particular time, but rather to His loving and perfect eternal union with the Father in the Godhead. It holds the idea that the personhood of Christ is, is the sole representative of God, possessing every attribute, every characteristic of God because He is God. The intent of Paul's letter is to argue against the idea that Christ is not God, right? So why would he, why would he intend to say, well, he's like an image of, he's just, a, he's just a copy? No, he wouldn't say that. He says the exact opposite. He means the exact opposite. Christ's firstborn refers to Christ's priority to all creation in time and his sovereignty over all creation in rank. On a side note, some religions incorrectly use this verse to argue against Christ's eternality. Jehovah's Witness translation in particular inserts the word other multiple times in the following verses in 16 or 15 through 17 or 16 through 17 where the word does not exist in the original text. The New World Translation, this is straight from their website, translates verses 15 and 17 this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation because by means of him all other things were created in the heavens and the earth, the things visible and the things invisible, whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authority, all other things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is before all other things, and by means of him all other things were made to exist. You see the difference? You see how subtle that is? But they just took away Christ's lordship. Consider this commentary. Again, this is from their website. A literal rendering of the Greek text would be all things. They just said it. However, such a rendering could give the impression that Jesus was not created but was the creator himself. And that idea would not agree with the rest of the Bible, including the preceding verse, which calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. That's why it's so important, church, for us to to know the scripture. You know what I mean? To know what the intent is, to know what the words mean, so you don't sit here and listen to some clown that doesn't know what he's talking about. Not Pastor Brad. That's not what I mean. <laughs> we have to know it. We're called to test everything. Thirdly, we see that Christ is the creator of all things. Verses 16 and 17. For, in, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But all of creation screams out the power and glory of God, of the creator of Christ is an understatement, right? I mean, who hasn't marveled at the beauty of a quiet morning spent watching the sunrise? Who here hasn't been amazed at the power and the sound of the ocean waves as they crash onto shore, come up to a certain amount, and then retreat, right? And they do it over and over and over perfectly. The moon perfectly placed the exact distance from the earth to make that happen. The sun and earth in perfect alignment. Not too far, not too close. So as to sustain life, the earth tilting on its axis at the proper time in the year to produce the proper seasons to produce and sustain life. Patterns repeated over and over and over again in perfect rhythm. The idea that nature, i.e. evolution, <laughs> randomly created these things, to me, it's harder to believe than an intelligent creator. Would you agree? Romans 1, 19 through 21 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Who? People. Because God has shown it to them. How? Nature. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I love that verse. Or, or, or think, about, think about the miracles of DNA, which is called the building blocks of life. The DNA molecule, most of us know, stores information as a four-character digital code, right? Strings of precisely sequenced chemicals inside the DNA double helix store the instructions for building the crucial proteins that the cells need to create life. And if you change the sequence, you change the cell. And it changes the outcome of the creature, right? It's amazing. Bill Gates himself has likened this process to a computer program. How funny is that? It's like somebody actually created it. Well, think about the vastness of the universe. In our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, there are hundreds of billions of stars, which is why I use that cool background. That's pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> it's actually supposed to be stars. That's silly. Astronomers believe that the number of stars in all of creation are so big, they're represented by 10 to the 25th power, which translates into this number. You can't even say it. Right? We don't even have a word for it. What's amazing is, what's amazing is, Psalm 147 says that he determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Isn't that fascinating? The, the phrase, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, refers to the various ranks of angels. The heretics, again, falsely believe that Christ is just one of the angels, but Paul says, no, he is above the angels. He created all of them and everything else. 
verse 18, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There's that word for firstborn again, the tatakos, of all who have been raised from the dead, though, Christ is first in rank and stature. Uh, on this passage, Matthew Henry commentated, commented, he said, not that he was the first who ever rose from the dead, but he was the first and only who rose by his own power and was declared to be the Son of God and Lord of all things. What Paul is doing in verse 18 is summarizing for emphasis the truth that Christ is not an angel, he is not a creation, he is the firstborn of all creation and the creator of all things and above all things, and he holds all things together. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 confirms this truth. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Yes, as a result of his death and resurrection, Christ has come to have preeminence over everything. If that isn't enough, consider this, that the God who created the universe from the smallest atom to the largest planet created you and created me. Not only created us in his image, but he created us in his image for the sole purpose of reflecting and proclaiming his glory. That's our purpose. You want to know what God's will for your life is, church? To glorify him and enjoy him forever. You're welcome. That's it. Whether through your job or your children or your spouse or your church. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And lastly, because God's fullness dwells in Christ, he is all that believers need. This is, this is really, really <coughs> what I love about this passage. For, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The root word for fullness in the Greek is pleromai. Pleromai. It has this idea of a total completion of divine powers, attributes, and abilities, which the heretics were preaching resided only in the creator, right? They believed that, that all the emanations of the creations each had like a, a little specific key. But Paul's point is no, Christ is not just one of the angels. Again, he is not a created being. He doesn't just have a portion of divinity. He wasn't simply a prophet, right? He wasn't in a spirit incarnation. Christ is truly God and truly man. I, I personally don't care for the statement fully God and fully man it's not that it's wrong but it confuses me you know like to me now I gotta I gotta figure out 100% and 100% which is 200% which is not true it's 100% so how does it fit together so I just use the term truly he's truly God he's truly man in him resides all the fullness of God he is Lord creator and sustainer of everything as he is sovereign over all he is sovereign over every man woman child that has ever lived lives today or will live in the future 
Think about that. He is sovereign over every creature that swims, walks, flies. He is sovereign over every man-made wonder from the smallest dust particle to the, the, the most complex thing that man can create. He's sovereign over every natural disaster. He has sovereignty over every dust particle, every microbe, every tree, every leaf, every flower, from the most violent of storms to the calmest of days. He is sovereign over this building, this town, this city, this state, this nation, this world, all the governments that have ever existed, exist today, or will exist. Isn't that amazing? God is sovereign over Democrats and Republicans. So calm down. It's it's going to be okay. Why does that matter? Because if we believe that he is who he says he is, then you're not going to stress about it. From the farthest reaches of the universe to the innermost workings of the human body, from the highest point of Mount Everest at 29,000 feet to the lowest point in the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Basin at 36,000 feet under sea level, from the simplest microorganism, like I said, to the most complex design, Christ says, it's all mine. From the car wreck that took your spouse to the organ transplant that saved your child. From the most beautiful natural scene on earth to the most war-torn, terrifying, disastrous picture that you can imagine. From the most innocent newborn baby to the most vilest of sinners ever to walk the face of the earth. Christ says, it all belongs to me. Everything. This is the God we are called to worship this is the king we are called to serve, one who is indescribable, uncontainable, all-powerful, untamable, and unfathomable. And this Lord, this God, this creator performed the most outrageous, radical, amazing act of all creation, accomplishing what no one else ever could. Church, he lived a sinless life. He purposefully, purposefully, and willfully provided himself as a sacrifice for your sins and my sins. So that all who would believe would be able to re-enter into that covenantal relationship with him that was destroyed so long ago by sin and have joy everlasting and that our joy would be made complete. Isn't that amazing? Isaiah 43, verse 1, the second half says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are mine. You belong to me. Our Lord redeems the brokenhearted, the lost, the rebel, and the hero. He redeems the prisoner and the soldier. He redeems the young and the old. Our God frees the most humblest and meekest of children from the vilest of sinners. There is no word, no thought, no action, no deed, no emotion, no motive that is too awful that you cannot come to him. So stop saying you don't know what he did to me. That's unforgivable. That's a lie. Can we agree? You don't know what he did to my wife. But Christ. You don't know what he did to me. But Christ. Christ, despite ourselves, Christ stands on behalf of us and covers all. And he invites us into a personal, intimate relationship with him. The creator has become the created so that he may be the propitiation, the payment for our sins, 
He deserves all of our respect, all of our honor, all of our focus, and every single bit of our hearts. Because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, believers have been reconciled to him. That's an amazing, amazing truth. Puritan John Owen said, the revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, far more glorious, more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than this whole creation can contain or afford. So let's summarize where we've been, what we've talked about. Through 15 through 20, we see that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. He has no beginning and no end. He is eternal. He is the creator of all things, seen and unseen, and he is all that believers need. What's the point? The point is that we fill our, our days and our lives and our hearts up with things of this world, right, that, that, that don't matter. It's okay that you have a, a, a job and we take vacations, we have family that we love, we have sports events and all that kind of thing, but if that's above God, that's an issue. That's sinful. It shows that in a real way, you don't belong to God. We have to order our lives appropriately. So in light of these truths, how are we called to respond? Right? Based on what we just read, what are we supposed to do? Well, the, the text doesn't, it's not, it's not an application, right? It's not asking you to do anything. My personal application for you and for me today, worship. <laughs> True, unfiltered, untamed uncontrolled, unrepressed, properly ordered worship of the personhood of Christ Jesus. Not the book, not the building, not the service, not the people, not the scripture. Christ. To simply marvel at who God is, to bask in his greatness so that we are drawn closer into a life-changing covenantal relationship. John Piper says it this way, we were made to see and savor with everlasting satisfaction, the supremacy of Christ. Isn't that a wonderful statement? Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. My question, church, is have you tasted, have you seen that he's sufficient? Our keyboard player, Karen, Karen Tart, <laughs> most of you guys know her. She makes an amazing banana pudding. <laughs> I'm just going to throw it out there. <laughs> Side note, $25 to anybody who can actually get the recipe. No, I'm kidding. I'll pay you $75. <laughs> okay, 125 and that's my final offer. <laughs> but, but. So, so if you look at it, right, if you look at the banana pudding, it looks great. It's, it's, I don't know what banana pudding is supposed to look like, yellow and white, I guess, but it looks great. It's, it's very inviting, right? It looks good. It looks like it would be tasteful. And if you knew the ingredients, which we don't, <laughs> you, you, you would say, all right, so, so I see what it looks like, and I know what's in it. Like, I know what holds it together, you know? But until you taste, you don't know what you're talking about, right? Until you taste it, you say, Man, this is fantastic. And what do you do? I hog it to myself, but what you should do <laughs> is go tell your friends. You have to taste this. You have to see. Taste this. And it's the same way. When we truly taste and see 
that Christ is good and enjoy him, God begins to turn our hearts, our desires, our longings more towards him and away from this world. He removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh so that we may worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's the point. That's the point. Some of our students, there's a program that, that we're involved in. It's called Student Leadership University, SLU. You guys may have heard it. Some of your children may have gone to it. It's a program about student leadership, and, and the idea is to obviously develop develop Christian young men and women with, a, with leadership skills in, into a Christian worldview. That's the point of it. If you have children and youth and they've never attended, I highly, highly encourage you to participate in that. It's well worth the investment. But there's, there's 101, 201, 301, and 401. And so the students went to, a couple weeks ago, they went to Washington, D.C., which is 201. And Heather, my wife, was one of the leaders that went. And so, so they're sitting there, and one of the sessions, um, a man by the name of Barry Black spoke. Chaplain Barry Black. Mr. Black served for over 27 years in the United States Navy Chaplain Corps, rising to the rank of Rear Admiral, Admiral <laughs> before retiring in 2003. He currently holds the position of Chaplain of the United States Senate. That is the most important position in government right there. And Heather said, as Mr. Black is speaking to your students, he's speaking of the greatness of Christ, right? He's, 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 he's relating everything back to Jesus, how our lives ultimately connect to him. But she said, as he's talking, he starts to say things like, like hallelujah and praise the Lord. But she said, it wasn't like, she said, it, she said it was like, as he's, as he's speaking these truths about Christ, that the realization of what they mean for him and what's been done for him is the, sort of washing over him anew, you know, like he's hearing it for the first time. And she said, he just goes, hallelujah, praise you, Jesus. She said he wasn't even talking to us. She said it's like we weren't even in the room. He is praising Christ in the middle of all these students. She said we could have been, he could have been in the room by himself. It would have made a bit of difference. That's what I want. Don't you want that? That's what I want for you, church to realize the greatness and the mercies of Christ so that we can, we don't sing because we like the songs, we sing because these things are true. Our goal today has simply been to show you the supremacy of Christ. Our prayer is simply that his spirit will work in each one of us and we would respond accordingly. As the band comes forward, here's my charge to you, church. If you are a believer worship make sure your life is ordered in a way that christ is first and everything else is a far different second if you're not a believer and you're hearing the gospel for the first time my challenge to you is repent respond to christ and worship the last song we're going to sing is a song called rescue and it's perfect. It's perfect. Because you are the source of life. I can't be left behind. The premise of the song is, is obvious that, that Christ, I need you. 
all I need is you. All I want is you. I pray that will be true in our hearts today, church, that we would see and magnify the supremacy of Christ by faith. Lord, I thank you for your truth today revealed in your scripture. I thank you that you, <laughs> that you allow us to gather freely, that we can talk about these things. God, I pray that your name will be hallowed in our hearts and our lives, that we will be found complete in you, our joy being made complete in Christ and Christ alone, and that in all things, you would remain above. You are worthy, Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, church. Let's sing. Cause I need you, Jesus, to come to my rescue. Where else can I go? There's no other name by which I am This world has nothing for me. 